the government of the people, by the people, for the people, and which was secured in 1902, and which now is by man and woman for men and women. So the old order passeth away, and the old conditions for the Commonwealth of Australia changeth. The Australian nation has been the first to adopt that just democratic idea without respect to property. The Women's Federal Political Association has requested me to be nominated for the federal election, and after consideration, I have consented. I will have all the hard work of holding meetings to organise my campaign, and naturally have to start out greatly handicapped to the men candidates. I hold a deep-rooted principle that women should step out and assume her share of the responsibilities of the office. I know I must have those who believe in women for home duties and such like against me, but I believe it is the duty of woman to take her share in the work to protect her interests and that she should take the deepest interest in political matters. That's the voice of Professor Claire Wright playing the part of Vida Goldstein, the first woman to stand for elected office in a national parliament in the English-speaking world. She did that in 1903, and Claire, at the Sydney Writers' Festival last year, recreated her speech to an enthralled audience. And she's a great guest today on the podcast as well. This episode is brought to you by news.speakola.com. I've spent the week making newsletters about great speeches by women. There's a part one and a part two, if you look them up. News.speakola.com. You can sign up for free. And you can sign up as a paid subscriber. You get an email a week for free and you get extras if you pay. A basic subscription is $5 per month. And if you are getting anything out of the podcast or the newsletter or the website for that matter, every contribution helps it keep going. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Tony Wilson. Welcome to another episode of the Speak Ola podcast. It is Tony Wilson here, and this was intended as an International Women's Day episode. I interviewed Professor Wright the day before International Women's Day, but the edit got away from me. I didn't quite get it out in time, and given most of the action in the episode happens in 1903, you could say the material wasn't going to date. And when I did get round to editing, I realised just what I had on my hands. This is a fantastic episode. It should be sent to every kid studying Australian history and indeed world history when it comes to women getting the vote because the Australian women were world leaders in the 1890s and Claire Wright explains that really vividly in this podcast. Claire Wright tells the amazing story of Vida Goldstein going to visit Teddy Roosevelt in the White House. So if you love this one as much as I do, send it on to your Australian history-loving friend or teacher to share with a wider audience. 
I mentioned that you can sign up at news.speakola.com. We also have a 10-week sponsor of the podcast, and that is docplay.com. And amazingly, well, maybe not amazingly, because all the good documentaries are up at docplay.com, but there is a Claire Wright documentary up there talking about the franchise struggle in Australia. It is called Utopia Girls, How Women Won the Vote. And many of the stories and themes that are in this podcast are contained in that wonderful film up on docplay.com. Look up Utopia Girls. And if you're interested in women's history, another friend of mine, Catherine Dwyer's got a film on Docplay. It's called Brazen Hussies. And Brazen Hussies leaps us forward to second wave feminism and the struggle for women's rights in the 1970s. Brazen Hussies, great film. And the great Indigenous filmmaker Rachel Perkins has got a film up there as well. It's called Black Panther Woman. And it tells the story of a woman who suffered abuse at the hands of the Australian Black Panthers in the 1970s. And she goes to a Black Panther convention, a worldwide one. And Rachel Perkins travels along with her. That one's called Black Panther Woman. But there are thousands of great documentaries on DocPlay. And you get them 45 days free if you sign up through Speakola. DocPlay.com forward slash racks forward slash Speakola. It's now time to delve into the episode with Professor Wright. She's an author, a historian, a broadcaster. She's the Professor of History at La Trobe University. She won the 2014 Stellar Prize for her book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. The book she'll mention a few times during the interview is You Daughters of Freedom, The Australians Who Won the Vote and Inspired the World. All those books out through text publishing. Let's hear from Claire now. We'll speak all on tour again, and I'm out at La Trobe University talking to an old friend of mine, an Einstein Factor friend of mine. We were on that, well, it ran for a long time, that quiz show on the ABC, Dr. Claire Wright. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's a great pleasure, Tony. I'm going to correct you. It's Professor Claire Wright now, since those Einstein days when we were Einstein alumni. Times wow. have changed. Wow, congratulations. And we're going to be drawing on that professorship of yours because you are one of Australia's leading historians. You won the Stella Prize in 2014 for your wonderful The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. And today we're going to talk about a great speech in Australian history, one that you featured at the Sydney Writers' Festival last year. Introduce it, Claire. Okay, so... Coming off the back of The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, I wrote a book called You Daughters of Freedom, the second instalment of my democracy trilogy. And that book was about the women who had not only made Australia the most democratic place at the turn of the 20th century, Australia was the first country to give white women the right to vote and the right to stand for parliament, but also those women then went and proselytised the idea of women's suffrage and female enfranchisement to the rest of the world. And one of the women that I featured in that book is a personal hero of mine, Vida Goldstein. I think she's somebody that every school child in Australia should learn about. We should all know her name and reel it off as easily as we do Deacon, Barton, Andrew Fisher, the people who were her contemporaries 
in that Federation era Australia. She was as important to the times as they were. And one of the things that she was uh, famous for as the leader of the Australian suffrage movement was that she was the first person in Australia and indeed the British world to stand for elected office to a federal parliament. And that was the Senate, wasn't it, in, in 1903? She ran for the Senate in 1903, which was the first time that women could stand for elected office in Australia or in any part of the world. They won that right in 1902. It was written into the Franchise Act. And 1903 was the first federal election in which that newly won franchise and those political rights, equal political rights with men, that's what no one else in the world had, they were able to stand for parliament. And Vida was the first person to put her hand up, uh, pitch her hat into the ring. She stood as an independent and she stood as an independent for uh, very specific and principled reasons. Like many suffrage advocates, she didn't believe in the political party system. She felt that it was not applicable to women's interests and that's what she wanted to represent in the parliament. Her argument was that industry was represented in parliament, that commerce, that farmers, that the landed aristocracy, that all of these different interest groups had representatives in parliament, but women in the home didn't. And that's what she wanted to, that's the perspective she wanted to bring to parliament. And she felt that if she stood for a political party, that the political party's interests would always subsume and always override women's interests. And she couldn't abide that. So she stood as an independent. And this speech was the first speech that she gave, the opening speech of her political campaign, given in Portland, which was her hometown, and in the Western District of Victoria. That's where her mother had grown up, squatocracy. And she wanted to go home to give this speech. And one of the reasons that I gave it at the Sydney Writers' Festival was because the night that I delivered it was the eve of the 2022 federal election in which there were going to be an historic number of women standing as independents. We now know that movement as the Teal Revolution. Yeah. But at the time, uh, election eve 2022, it was sort of all in the balance as to whether these women who were standing, uh, much as Vida did, for a range of interests that they felt were not being adequately addressed by the major political parties, whether these women were going to get up. So I thought it was an opportune time to give the first speech, not only by a woman who was running for office in Australia, but running as an independent. And you mentioned Portland, and that was her hometown, her place of birth, I think. Can you tell us about her early life? Who was this remarkable woman? What were her parents like? And how did she kind of emerge into this movement? How did she become our own Emmeline Pankhurst? Okay, so Vida Goldstein was born in 1869, a full century before my birth. And she was born in Portland to parents Isabella Hawkins, who was her mother, part of the Hawkins dynasty, and therefore part of the dispossession of the First Nations people who lived in those lands, squatters from way back, a wealthy family. 
Her father was a man called Jacob Goldstein, who was the son of a Polish-Jewish revolutionary who had come to Victoria in the 19th century. So although she had a foreign-sounding name, um, Vida wasn't. Vida was, is Latinate for David, a very common name around the turn of the century. It just sounds a bit odd now. But Goldstein, uh, certainly a Jewish name, but she never identified as Jewish. She didn't practice as Jewish. She was raised Scots Presbyterian as part of her mother's family. Indeed, she went to PLC in Melbourne. Is that where you went? I did not. I went to McRobertson Girls High. Good secular education there, Tony. Yeah. And she was an excellent student. She was fated to be part of Melbourne's social scene. She indeed was, you know, part of that, that elite. Vida was wooed by many of Melbourne's establishment, including, interestingly, a young Sir John Monash, before he was a sir. And uh, Sir John Monash apparently wanted to marry Vida Goldstein and she turned him down. And he had um, a few snippy things to say about her after that. But Vida knew very early on that she didn't want to marry not only John Monash, but any man. Because she worked out pretty early that what she wanted to do was fight for the rights of all women and children. And she felt possibly quite rightly, that if she were to become a wife and mother herself, that that was not going to be possible. Women of her generation didn't have, even educated women of her generation, didn't have the same sorts of choices that my generation born 100 years later did in terms of being able to, well, I guess the modern idea is have it all, whether we can have it all or not is open to conjecture. But there were certainly no pathways uh, or very few pathways for, for educated middle-class women like Vida to also have a public life, which is what she wanted, a political life. She was a political woman through and through. She became politicised when she followed her mother into the slums of Fitzroy and Carlton and Collingwood, collecting signatures for what became known as the Monster Suffrage Petition. And for any listeners in Melbourne or who have travelled to Melbourne, they might have seen that sculpture that is out the back of Treasury, along where the number 11 tram runs down into Collins Street, and it looks like a big scroll and that is that petition represents the, the 1889 Monster Petition, which was to the time the largest petition ever put to Parliament, and it was a petition for women's voting rights. 1889? 1889. It was hugely important at the time because the Victorian Premier had said that if it could be proven that not only blue-stocking women like Vida, educated uh, women, but all women or all walks of life of women wanted the vote that he would put a motion to Parliament. And so within six weeks, 30,000 signatures were collected by hand, pen and ink, and and, and they were all stuck onto cotton and then rolled up into this huge scroll that was dragged into the parliament and presented and that's that sculpture represents that extraordinary act 
But it was an incredibly important moment, pivotal moment, paradigm-shifting moment for Vida to go into those parts of Melbourne that she had never been to before uh, as, a, as a lady of her breeding and to see the way that most women were living. And she would have been 20, 1889. Correct. Young woman, just out of school and uh, running her own school with, with her sisters. She was one of five girls running her own school with her sisters by this stage um, for other middle-class children, girls mostly. And she went into the slums of Melbourne and she could see the poverty and the desperation and what, what she called the ceaseless hours of toil. And she basically at that point dedicated the rest of her life to women's rights and the idea that getting the vote was the key that would unlock all of the other opportunities that women needed to be able to overcome the deprivations of their life. That the vote was not a cure-all, but it was the Trojan horse of women's emancipation. And when does the vote arrive in Australia? How effective was that petition? Because I know it was state by state and we often boast we were the first country to give the vote to women. Is that because we were the first federal national parliament to give the vote to women in the English-speaking world? Or was there a colony, was it South Australia or something, jumped the gun and was actually the first constituency? Yeah, correct. And this is one of the reasons I wrote You Daughters of Freedom, Tony, was that book was supposed to be all about what Australian women did next after they won the vote and and the ways in which they had participated in other global movements for suffrage, particularly the British militant suffragette movement. But what I realised was that so few Australians actually had a grip on their own suffrage history that that became the first third of the book. So... Women's suffrage had actually been advocated in Australia from the 1860s. Actually, my Eureka book um, took that timeline even back to to that Eureka movement, part of that democratic movement. There were people advocating for women's suffrage as part of what became men's suffrage after Eureka. But there wasn't really an organised women's suffrage movement until the 1880s. And from the early 1880s, there were women's suffrage bills going up to the lower houses of all the Australian colonial parliaments. And they would pass. And that's because the colonial lower houses were democratically elected representative houses. However, the upper houses were all still privileged, elitist, property-owning people who could have the vote to them. They were not elected houses. They were um, nominated through those um, qualifications that you had to have as a property owner. So what would happen would be that the popular lower houses would pass women's suffrage bills. They would go up to the upper houses, which were propertied, vested interests, and they would get stymied every time. Let's go to South Australia in 1894. New Zealand passes an act to give women the right to vote in 1893. It therefore becomes the first jurisdiction in the world to give women those democratic voting rights. New Zealand was a colony at that time, just as South Australia and Victoria and New South Wales were. Indeed, as part of the early Federation movement, it was considered that New Zealand might join. We could have had them. We could have had them. They could have had us. There was a place (laughs) for them at the table. 
all the way up until uh, through the until the final stages of federation, there was there was a place at the table in the Commonwealth for New Zealand, uh, but they went their own way. So when New Zealand women got the right to vote in 1893, that was world leading. In 1894, South Australia put up a bill to the lower house, as it had many times before, for women's right to vote. But there was a particular set of circumstances going on in South Australia at this point in time. For the first time in its history and in any colonial history, there was a non-conservative majority in the upper house. There was a coalition in the upper house and it was a non-conservative majority. So there was this little window where it looked like the bill which passed the lower house might also pass the upper house. So in the very last stages of debate, one of the members added an amendment to the Women's Suffrage Bill. And he thought it was an amendment that would absolutely kill the bill. He had an amendment that said not only should women get the right to vote, but they should also have the right to stand for Parliament. Now, this was something that the Labor Party wasn't calling for. No one in the world had called for. Women weren't calling for it. It was just like a bridge too far. Yeah. It was like saying that somebody, you know, could grow two heads. It was it was out an outlandish, outrageous, um, ambit yeah. stalling. And it was to wreck the bill. To wreck the bill. Was he a conservative? He was. Yeah. Absolutely designed to wreck the bill. So what happens? It's like I, I consider this like the Bradbury moment of Australian politics. You know, um, the Olympic yeah, ice skater who, yeah. sk- who, who just – everybody else fell and he slid across the line. So it's like the biggest political belly flop. Put up an, an amendment to wreck the bill. However, what happened, it was voted, the eyes had it. South Australian women not only won the right to vote but the right to stand for parliament – and became the most fully enfranchised in the world. And interestingly, not only white women. First Nations women were also included in this bill. And so for the first time in world history, there was a, 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 a colonial parliament, any parliament, where women could not only vote but also stand for parliament. And so no, that means no one was excluded in that parliament? No one was excluded in that parliament. It was full suffrage in 1894. Full added, adult suffrage in 1894. Now why this becomes incredibly important in Australia's federal history is because in 1897 there was a constitutional convention held in Adelaide this is where elected representatives of the colonies were getting together to thrash out what a new Commonwealth was going to look at. Like. I did this in my year. This is my year twelve Australian history. There Big you, states versus small states. There you go. Okay, I'm glad to hear your high school history counted for something. So, because South Australian women could actually stand for elected office, one woman did run for that. Catherine Helen Spence. She didn't win, but she threw her hat in the ring and she not only showed that women could stand for office, but she importantly was part of a contingent of very politically active South Australian women who egged on the progressive South Australian men who did get elected to the Constitutional Convention to vote for a clause in the Constitution that would say that In a federated Australia, no one could lose any voting rights, that no one in any of the colonies could lose 
their standard of suffrage. So South Australian women weren't going to cop not voting in the federal parliament? Correct. Or being able to stand for it. Yeah. So effectively, women's suffrage became the precondition to a federated Australia because what the South Australian delegates said was that if this wasn't accepted, they would cede, they would not join the federation. And by the time that this was voted upon, Western Australian women also had the vote, but not the right to stand for parliament. But effectively, once the vote came, it meant that the South Australian standard became the federal standard. And in federal elections, all women had the right to vote and to stand for parliament. Now, I'm going to put in one little very important exclusion. When the, the bill was debated, the Franchise Act was then debated, it was deliberately decided to exclude Indigenous people from this franchise, both women and men. And this was thrashed out in the Parliament. There were some of the new parliamentarians from that Commonwealth Parliament that was voted in in 1901 who expressly said, hang on, we've taken their land from them, we've deprived them of their birthright, and now we're going to deprive them of voting rights as well. So there were people who absolutely saw what was going on, and but then there were others that just rode roughshod over that. And basically the people who wanted the women's franchise sacrificed Indigenous franchise for that larger goal. And so the Franchise Act that gave Australian women these historic world-leading democratic rights also excluded Indigenous people from the vote. And we know that they didn't get those rights back until 1962. And, you know, Vida talks about white Australia in this speech and it's, it's an interesting part, you know, for a hero figure for you and, and uh, uh, certainly a, you know, an incredibly important and an intelligent and, and, and a leader of people. This That's quite a confronting little bit of the speech that, that we'll get to. But I thought I'd ask you about Vida coming into 1903. What's she done the previous decade? The South Australians have got franchise. There are people like Emmeline Pankhurst who are making news worldwide with with kind of violent acts in the UK. What's she leading? What, what, what sort of a politician is she in the previous decade? Okay, so... In the run-up to this speech, when, when Vida does have the, the opportunity to stand for office in 1903, actually the British suffragettes, Emmeline Pankhurst, they're not up to those what we now consider to be the kind of apex of the global women's suffrage movement. They don't form, the Pankhursts don't form the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, the militant branch of the British suffrage movement, who we now know as the suffragettes until 1905. So Emmeline's not on the scene yet. What we do know that Vida is doing is she becomes the leader of the Australian and New Zealand, Australasian, they call it at the time, the Australasian suffrage movement, which because it is now world leading, is setting the scene and, and setting the standard for the global suffrage movement. So there has been a suffrage movement all around the world from the 1880s, particularly in Britain, but also in Canada, in, in France, um, across continental Europe, and in America also. And in 1902, the first international women's suffrage conference is held in Washington, D.C., 
There are delegates from about, I think, about nine countries who are invited to come, including, interestingly, now Russia. And Vida is invited to come over as the leader of the Australasian movement and the only woman to be at the conference who has a vote. And so she's a superstar. Hmm. She's like, like, I almost don't really want to run the analogy that she's like the Kylie Minogue of her age, but she kind of is because people, she's a rock star. People are, are flocking to see her speak. She ends up doing a three-month speaking tour of America, talking to women all and men who are also suffrage campaigners all over the United States because they want to have a sense of the possibility of the leadership um, of the strategies. They want to know how it was done in Australia. And certainly over the, these years, uh, this, 19, these, this sort of first decade of the 20th century, sociologists, journalists, political analysts, they're all coming to Australia to see what democracy looks like. Because one of the main arguments against women's suffrage that has been posited for 40 years now has been that effectively the sky will fall, that it will be the end of humanity as we know it, that women, if they are allowed to go to the polls once a year and cast a vote, will cease to have children. They will not want to marry anymore. They will become shrieking harridans, that it will... I'm using words from the time, that it will unsex them, that they will become manly women. And so all of these kind of prophecies of doom are what people around the world want to see whether that has come to fruition. So Vida is is a person that becomes a magnet for the world's attention. So much so that when she is in Washington at this conference, she is invited by Teddy Roosevelt, the first, who is a suffragist himself um, or believes in suffrage. She's invited to come and meet him in the Oval Office. And as far as I can tell, she's the first Australian who was ever invited to come and meet an American president Mm. in the Oval Office. And he invites her to come and see him because, in his words, he wants to see what one of these enfranchised women looks like. (laughs) He says, I've got my eye on you down there in Australia. I mean, when's the last time an American president said that? It was actually looking to Australia for leadership. And he wants to see whether she has grown horns or, you know, has become a kind of shriveled up old prune overnight which is what all of the caricatures and all of the newspapers about what suffragists look like you know they look like crones who hit men over the head with their umbrellas before flying off on their broomsticks well it's interesting when you get to the actual speech if we look at the words of it she starts with why she's starting in in portland and you've talked a little bit about that she's talked about is australia the first and yes it is and this is historic and then she anticipates the criticism personally i have no axe to grind And if I desire a peaceful life, I should remain out of politics. I believe, however, that women should go in for some of these duties, not for self-interest or the amount of money hanging to it, as many men do, but because it should be the duty of all to do the best that they can for the state one way or the other. And she's there anticipating, I have no axe to grind. It's that thing where you think I'm a mad woman and I'm not. That's right. I and mean, there was enormous amount of uh, vilification, 
of suffrage campaigners, of derision, of caricature. You know, what Julia Gillard suffered when she became the Prime Minister of Australia is obviously a horrific level of harassment, of treatment, of sexist, misogynist treatment that no male politician has ever had to face. And we're still seeing this. You know, we've seen Nicola Sturgeon and step down um, and we've seen Jacinda Ardern step down and they've given a lot of reasons. But one of them clearly is that the pressure that they are under as political women is, is not commensurate with what men have to experience. And this has a long history. This vilification and targeting of political women goes right back to, well, you could say that it goes back to biblical times, but it certainly is, is prevalent with these women who were stepping forward in a public way. So also remember that this era is coming out of the Victorian era, so we're talking Federation era, is coming out of Victorian times where there is a very clear division between public and private spheres. The idea that women exist in the private sphere that they are supposed to be the angels of the hearth, that they are supposed to soothe the brow of men when they come home from the rough and tumble of the public sphere, of politics, of commerce, of industry. And where do those men get their safety and their succor from so that they can go back out into those competitive landscapes? Well, they get it at home in the soothing presence of their women folk and these are very rigid boundaries where also women don't have access to higher education if they've had any access to schooling at all they are not allowed in the professions in any way they're starting to break through some of those barriers by this stage but very rigid sex roles gender roles and, uh, and notions of where your place is. So for women like Vida and, and the whole cohort of suffrage activists around her, to actually be seen in public places, having a voice and speaking out against the systemic oppression of women was not only radical, it was revolutionary. And this is, this is what the suffrage campaigners in Britain, particularly the suffragettes, um, who we now are so much more familiar with than our own suffragists, um, I, I should maybe make a, a point, a historical point, is that Australia didn't have suffragettes. Suffragettes is the term that is specifically used to describe the militant wing of the British suffrage movement. And those are the Emmeline Pankhursts and, uh, and her daughters and others in that movement who were chaining themselves to things. Interesting that the first suffragette to chain herself to something was Muriel Matters who chained herself to the ladies' gallery, the grill of the ladies' gallery in the House of Commons. And Muriel Matters was an Australian woman, born in Adelaide, and she had went to London and she was fighting the good fight that Australian women had already won for British sisters in London. And um, so that was actually an Australian's claim to fame. And But these are the women who were burning things down, who were smashing windows, who were staging mass public demonstrations, a million people in Hyde, half a million people in Hyde Park, hundreds of thousands of women marching down the streets of London. Freedom or death, one of the famous speeches, Emmeline Pankhurst, I think that was in 
Connecticut, maybe, in in nineteen fourteen. So this is a long time after. A long time after, and that that that's just before the just before the outbreak of World War One, and when the British militant suffragists actually wound up their activities. Emmeline Pankhurst put the war effort before the women's effort. Did she come to Australia? She did not. Her daughter Adeline Pankhurst did. She was kind of the black sheep of the family, and she was essentially sent off to the colonies because she was a troublemaker for her mother and she was sent directly to Vida because Vida Goldstein had been brought over by Emmeline Pankhurst in 1911, had been brought to London to be her kind of secret weapon in the in the British campaign. She brought Vida over and Vida was in London for most of 1911, which was a watershed year in British suffragette history. And Vida was gave speeches at Royal Albert Hall. She filled the hall to capacity. She famously spoke to uh, Royal Albert Hall, which I think the capacity was like 10,000 people, without any amplification. Unfortunately, Tony, there are no recordings of Vida's speeches. There has been a lot written about her speechifying, though, and the fact that she was such a beautiful speaker, that she was powerful, that she could reach to the corners of these auditoriums, that she held everybody in her spell, but that she spoke with a feminine tone. This was always the thing that was, was said about her, that she hadn't, she hadn't lost her feminine tone. <laughs> and, but we don't have any recordings of her, so we can only take what we know from, from the reports. Well, she mentions that she's going to be an independent for the reasons that you said. Um, and she chooses one law. Tell us the one law, the one sexist law that she highlights. It's just a, a crazy law that you can't believe existed in 1903. Yeah, so this law basically says it all, doesn't it? This is the law that excluded women from custody of their own children. So So there were the angels of the hearth, but they could not actually have custody of their children. Men could and did take the children away, generally as a way of punishing in some way a woman who they saw as being unruly or uncontrollable. So when you talk about custody, I, I was reading it in terms of willing children so that people, men in their wills would leave their children to, to go to someone else and there would be no power left with the mother. Could they take children away just generally? Like- yes, they could. They absolutely could and they did. And so one of the women who was another one of the Australian suffragists who I talk about in, in Your Daughters of Freedom, who became very important to the British suffragette movement as well, was a woman called Dora Montefiore. And she became radicalised, politicised in Australia when her husband died early and unexpected and she was left as a widow um, with two young children and she went to a lawyer who told her that she didn't have custody of her children and that should another family member wish to take the children, that that was possible, that she had no legal right to them at all. And that was what made her realise that she needed to spend the rest of her life advocating for the rights of all women, particularly mothers and mothers who wanted to protect their children. 
And then she rolls on and she gets to the White Australia policy and talks about that and talks about immigration as well and talks about the Kanakas, I think they're called. I'm not really aware of, of who the Kanakas were, but can you tell us about this? I guess the troubling part of the speech for people who are living in 2023, um, but you as a historian can tell us. Yeah, so the Kanakas were slave labour, essentially, that were um, were brought over to... North Queensland to work in the sugar canes from Pacific Islands. And it's a shameful part of Australia's history that we don't know enough about. So this is why I also think this speech is really interesting, Tony, and that I wanted to give it. And, and, and when you play it, people will hear the reaction of the crowd that I was giving it to. Because I'll have to tell you, firstly, I have to give you some context about how I got this speech. So as I said, there are no recordings of any of Vida's speeches. I took this speech from the transcription that was given by a journalist who was present when Vida gave the speech in Portland that night. And journalists would basically write out the whole of somebody who was giving a speech anywhere, not just Vida, or all political candidates, all people giving speeches anywhere. They would they would almost write it word for word as reportage. They would write it in the third person, like she said, da-da-da-da. And what I have done in the speech is I have changed the third person to the first person so that it sounds like Vida is delivering it herself. That's the only modification that I've made at all, to change the third person to the first person. But the other thing that reporters did when they were reporting speeches is they reported the crowd's reaction. Hmm. So in square brackets, there will be applause. There will be loud cheering. And when I was delivering the speech to the Sydney Writers Festival audience, I encouraged the audience to follow the directions. That's great. And because the beginning of the speech is very, let's say, conforms to contemporary politics, let's say the, the first part of the speech, let's say, conforms to contemporary progressive politics. So the ride-on Sydney crowd had no trouble getting behind yeah, the things that Vida was saying. Lots of cheering. As the speech goes on, it becomes harder to follow the prompts because we start to get into murky moral territory, not because anything about Vida has changed, but because the times we are living in have changed radically from Vida's times. Vida was living through the White Australia era, the height of the White Australia policy. In fact, the first act of the new Commonwealth that was passed was the Immigration Restriction Act. The second act was the Franchise Act. So the two things go hand in hand. They are absolutely wheeling out the mechanics of what citizenship in Australia looks like, what the complexion, what the political, what the civic complexion of Australians are going to be. And that might be female, but it is most definitely white. And Vida was akin with her times in that sense. She believed in a white Australia policy. She didn't necessarily believe in it for the same reasons that everybody else did. 
in the one time that I can find her specifically discussing her feelings about the white Australia policy. She says it's because she doesn't believe that white men are sufficiently civilised themselves yet to treat black men as equals and that it will drag everybody down. But there is certainly no sign that the suffrage movement of this era has any fellow feeling for their black sisters. So there is no outcry from the suffrage movement when Indigenous women lose their voting rights. Australian suffrage campaigners are much more concerned with the futures and the prospects of the people they call their British sisters, and that's why they go over and they fight in Britain and why they go over to America, is they see themselves as part of these settler colonial nations that are, have sprung from empire and that it is their duty to elevate the position of women in those places. So when we get to the bits of the speech that are more historically complex in that way, you'll hear that the crowd is more muted in its response. <laughs> they are, and you call them on it. <laughs> and it that, it's just interesting. I mean, the, one of the heroes of Planned Parenthood, the hero of Planned Parenthood in the United States is a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger, who I'm sure you know about and have studied and these sorts of things. But Margaret Sanger, she now cops flack rightly because she addressed meetings of the Ku Klux Klan because she was particularly keen on Planned Parenthood for African-American families because she didn't want them breeding. There yeah, was a, there you, was a, she there was, was a, a eugenicist. Racist, yeah, she was a eugenicist. So there was a racist element to it. And it's such a temptation to cut her down at the knees for that because it's, it's a kind of unforgivable. And yet to have the vision and the courage to do what she does originally, you know, it's, a, it's, a real, it's real vision and courage. And, and we're looking in 2023 instead of 1940. Um, but yeah, this is it feels similar, doesn't it? It's not as bad as that, or not as confronting as that. But it's it's um, it's it's totally like that, and and it is a real conundrum, and it's one that I hash over all the time because, you know, I am totally. It's it's Tony. This is uh, an absolute moral quagmire, and it, and it's one that I wade through all the time. It's a total conundrum because I am completely supportive and believe in, say, the the words of Maxine Beneba Clark. She's got a great poem where she says, my feminism will be intersectional or it will be bullshit. And that's 100% the feminism that I would support, which is that every level of a woman's oppression has to be systematically addressed. And women are not defined by or w women's experience of the world is not solely defined by their gender but it is completely intercut with their race their whether they are able-bodied or not their class you know indeed actually this is something that Vida Goldstein came up against herself because the reason that she didn't win that 1903 election was precisely because she didn't join the Labor Party. Had she have joined the Labor Party, she would have easily won because she would have had the vote of working women, 
one of the things that she did not countenance was that women would vote according to their class, not their sex. So she was expecting the slings and arrows of the chauvinist men who were in opposition to women's suffrage. She was not expecting that women would not vote along their sex interests. And What percentage did she get? Yeah, she got about 50,000 or so votes, which was about 5% of the total ballot. It was more than any of the other women who ran. There were four other women who ran in, that, uh, in those elections. But she, clearly that is not enough to get her over the line. Most political commentators at the time said that had she have joined the Labor Party, she would have won that Senate seat. But she didn't compromise her principles. She stood for elected office five times. She stood as an independent every time and she lost every time. You know, it does say something about her her principled nature. Other people said it showed something about her hard-headedness, that actually maybe she was edging for perfection and she should have gone for good. What's that expression? Don't let per- perfection get in the way of... Uh, you know the, the one enemy of the, the... The great be the enemy of the good, is Yeah, it? don't let the... Don't let the perfect be the enemy yeah. of the good. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that, okay? So, so she, she held out and she lost. And when, <laughs> when there was a memorial seat to Vida Goldstein that was finally erected in her hometown of Portland, mind you, there is no other kind of commemoration of Vida anywhere else. There's a little plaque out the back of Parliament House in Victoria but I've never seen it. It's in private grounds. But the only public memorial is this seat that was made for her, this bench, park bench that was made in her honour in Portland and some wag in the local press said Vida's finally got her seat. (laughs) Well, that is funny. (laughs) It is funny. It's a great joke. So, yeah, no, look, um, the whole issue of judging people of the past by contemporary standards is very difficult. Do we... Do we knock Vida off her pedestal as being a complete rule breaker, as being someone who absolutely fought for rights that women now enjoy today? Do we discount her role in history as a paradigm shifting force because she was also a racist? I don't think she was a eugenicist, but she was... She was certainly sectarian. She hated Catholics. Yeah. Um, she was she was not a modern woman, but she was an important woman in her times that changed this country irrevocably. And you've been making a statue. You haven't been making the statue, but you've been campaigning and raising money for a statue to be built for one of your daughters of freedom, haven't you? Or is it a later? That's a later woman, Tony. I co-founded and co-convened a community not-for-profit campaign organisation called A Monument of One's Own that is advocating for statue equality in Australia. Only 3% of statues in Australia are of real historic named women. There are more statues of animals than there are of women in Australia. And we are never going to close the gap and get to equity, I don't believe, but we can make monumental change to our civic landscapes, to the idea of who is allowed to take up space in our streets, to who the idea of 
who are credible, authoritative figures that we can commemorate, celebrate, whose achievements and whose legacies we respect enough to put on pedestals. We can do all of those things if we have the political will and the funding behind it. And indeed, a monument of one's own in collaboration with Trades Hall Council, with funding from the Victorian state government, is going to unveil its first statue to the equal rights campaigner Zelda Deprano, who famously chained herself to the Commonwealth buildings in 1969, campaigning for equal pay. And why you can see the smile on my face right now is because when I interviewed Zelda a couple of years before her death, I asked her directly whether she was influenced by the suffrage campaigners and particularly Muriel Matters and, the, and the, her chaining herself to the grill at the House of Lords. And she said, yes, of course. We were walking in their footsteps. We were standing on their shoulders. And this is the importance of women's history. This is why it's important to remember our legacies because knowing what women did in the past and what effect their actions had empowers women in the present to be able to believe that they too can be agents of change. And Violet, has she got a statue or you go, she, have you got her on your hit list? Is she getting one? Hope to, hopefully one day? I very much hope to see Vida in bronze or concrete. I would like to see her out the front of Parliament House in Victoria. That was the Federal House of Parliament in, the, in her era between the inauguration of the Commonwealth Parliament in 1901 and the opening of Old Parliament House in Canberra in 1922. The Victorian Parliament was the Commonwealth Parliament and Vida had a place in it. She didn't have an elected place in it but she advised many of the members of the Commonwealth. She had what was considered to be her seat that was placed just outside of where the members sat so that she could lean over and, and whisper in their ear. She's credited as giving them a lot of ideas, particularly Labor members, and of even writing some of their speeches. And so I think that that is where she deserves to have some kind of commemorative resting place. And when did she die? And, what, and do you know where her actual resting place is? Yes, she's buried in the St Kilda Cemetery. She died in 1949. She was... Vida had a whole other part of her life that wasn't about suffrage. Uh, during World War I, she became an anti-conscription campaigner. She changed the nature of her women's organisation. It was called the Women's Political Association, the WPA, and during the First World War, it became the Women's Peace Army. She was a pacifist. She was an anti-conscriptionist. She spoke at rallies at Yarra Bend. She gave speeches as part of that. She became a socialist. She was involved in the Russian Revolution in various ways. And she was an absolutely central figure of Australian politics until about 1922, um, when she came back from a tour of Europe that had included being part of the Women's Peace Alliance. Women were locked out of the Versailles peace talks, but women held their own version of that. And interestingly, they invited German women to the table because they felt that the only true and lasting peace could be brokered by sitting down with the enemy. 
might have helped us mm. <laughs> in the 20s. Mm. And when she got back from that tour in 1922, she, she dipped out of public life and she spent her final years with her sisters, living with other female companions and seeing out her life as a Christian scientist. I haven't mentioned this is another important strand of Vida's belief system was that she was a practicing Christian scientist along with the rest of her family from the early 20th century. And she became a spiritual healer and she led a, a quiet life. She continued to watch politics, but she was very disappointed by what at the time was known as the modern woman. She was very disappointed that what women seemed to do with their newfound emancipation was raise the level of their skirts, smoke, go out dancing, put lipstick on. And she felt that all of the political gains of the suffrage era activists had been rather squandered for this sort of silly, frivolous, what the historian Liz Connor has called the spectacular modern woman. That yeah. was very performative, that was about being looked at, not being listened to. And Vida really, she didn't keep up with the times in that she was sort of seen as an old fuddy-duddy. And she sounds like it, you know. But, that, but people do that whenever, you always think the generation coming next doesn't do well enough, you know. And it's, it's a real trap I'm trying not to fall into. Go... <laughs> Go Gen Z and, and millennials. I'm I'm behind you, you know. You don't know shit. Yeah, I, I agree. I my <laughs> my motto is always make friends with people who are younger and smarter than yourself. Yeah. Well, Claire, what a what a lesson! I am so full of Australian history at this moment, and that was just a delight to listen to. And we're about to listen to you again because every episode I play a speech, and this week it's a beauty. It is your reading of the Vida Goldstein speech at the Sydney Writers' Festival last year. Thank you so much, Sydney Writers' Festival, for letting me play this. And you can buy tickets to the festival. You can buy those in the next week. I think they go on sale Friday. So look that up on the Sydney Writers' Festival. And I'll be at the Sydney Writers' Festival in late May when it's on. Excellent. Claire Wright, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Tony. What a great chat. And keep your eyes out for another episode with Claire Wright, another episode of this podcast. She's a great speaker herself. And I wanted to choose one that she's got up on Speakola, and she's got a few up. And there's going to be one that's featured that is called Epic Fail. And it's the story of a tough time in, in Claire's life. And she told that story at the Wheeler Center a few years ago. And it's a beautiful speech. So beautiful, in fact, it's even been some of the words of it have been put into a song, and it is it's a great episode, and that one will come up in the next few weeks or months. I mentioned news.speakola.com, and I'd love people to sign up there if you're interested in the podcast, the website, my general musings on speeches. I also write, I've written over 20 books, and my personal substack is called Good One Wilson. Good One Wilson! After the Jilla Mintz ad of the early 2000s, Australians might know what I'm talking about. But if you want to find out what's going on in my creative life, 
Some of it's about my family life. I write a little bit about my son who's got cerebral palsy. Go to goodonewilson.substack.com or just search up Good One Wilson. And those links are in the show notes. Speech of the week. Now, Claire Wright mentioned in the interview that there's no surviving audio of Vida Goldstein's speech in Portland in 1903. And indeed, she did some small tweaks to the reporting of the text, which was in the third person. Claire tweaked it so that it would read in the first person and feel as though it's coming from Vida herself. So that's a change Claire has made. I think given the way newspapers operated at the time, and I've seen this a lot in my collecting of speeches, they were very much word for word, but shifting into the third person. So this change really will provide an authenticity to the speech, and it it absolutely works, as you're about to hear. Claire gave the speech at the Sydney Writers' Festival last year. It was at an event called Friends, Romans, Countrymen. It was Sarah Kanowski in the chair, and she offered three writers the opportunity to share their favourite speeches. A very speak-ola sort of event, really. And so I contacted Benithan at the Sydney Writers' Festival, and he said I can use the audio, which is very kind of them. And I'll also mention that the Sydney Writers Festival tickets are on sale at the Sydney Writers Festival website. And Claire Wright is one of the guests this year. So go to swf.org.au and book some tickets to the 2023 festival. But now let's step back in time to 1903. And I won't introduce it any further because Claire provided a great introduction to this speech on the night. Are there any points where the audience needs to be prepared to be shocked or mortified or catcalled? I'll let let you do that yourself. But one thing I will say, I actually thought about, like, making a sign. Um, The way that they would report speeches in those days was to also report the audience response. So in square brackets, it says applause. (laughs) And so there are points at which there are applause. And I kind of thought I might, like pull out a sign that goes applause and you could all break into applause. We'll see, where, we'll see how that works. Well, what I'm going to do now when, the, when this great evening is written down for posterity, this will be the point where there's a square bracket that says applause. So join me. <laughs> now, as I said, this isn't the greatest piece of oratory of all time. It's not even my most favourite speech, but I think that it's appropriate. So I decided that I would wear my favourite speech, which I do think is a piece of oratory, great oratory. Um, this was given to me by my dear friend Lily Mooney for my birthday a week ago. It is the Julia Gillard's misogyny speech on an apron. <laughs> so I'll just give you a bit of the background by the journalist um, who made these opening remarks. The meeting being one of the most enthusiastic and well-behaved ever seen in Portland. (laughs) The attendance was unusually large, the hall being filled to overflowing. Ladies predominated, but the opposite sex were well represented also. And the greatest attention was paid to the remarks of the fair speaker throughout, whilst applause and other marks of satisfaction were most frequent. With commendable punctuality, Miss Goldstein appeared on the platform. The audience loudly demonstrated her arrival by applause. (laughs) So then Councillor Davis, who was the chairman, made some opening remarks. The approaching federal election will be rendered unique throughout the Commonwealth as it has been determined a woman should contest her right to equally share in the representation. 
I approve of the idea and trust such will be put to the test at the ballot box. You will have to remember that not only would the eyes of the Commonwealth be watching this movement, but those of all the world. Personally, I do not think there will be any great change in the voting. Hitherto, the father and brother have voted, and now it will be a household one, the wife voting with the husband and the sisters with the brothers. <laughs> I look upon woman in Parliament as a little leaven to sweeten the whole. Mm. So, in case I didn't set this up properly enough, this is also the first time Australian women can vote. So, uh, they got that right in 1902 with the Franchise Act, and this is 1903. So, the first time women in the world have gone to the ballot box. So, Miss Vida Goldstein, on rising, was met with loud applause. <laughs> she takes to the stage. The people of Portland all know why I've decided to open my campaign here, and I will only add that when that decision was announced, the people of Melbourne wanted to know why I was going to Portland, and even where Portland was, <laughs> and disappointment was felt that Melbourne had not been selected. The step I am taking is unique in the history of the world and may be called history-making in Australia. Portland is the place most connected with the early history of Australia and the honour, I have decided, of the first address of a woman candidate for a seat in Parliament by the joint franchise should be given to Portland. Applause. The idea of a woman candidate is so unusual in British dominions that to some it seems a revolutionary step. There have been women in Parliament in Great Britain, but they are there by hereditary right and in the interests of their landed property and naturally are not parallel cases. They take their seats and consider such quite proper to represent their vested interests. We have got beyond that idea and the right now is that of the franchise the modern right now of every sane law-abiding citizen, the government of the people, by the people, for the people, and which was secured in 1902 and which now is by man and woman for men and women. So the old order passeth away and the old conditions for the Commonwealth of Australia changeth. The Australian nation has been the first to adopt that just democratic idea without respect to property. The Women's Federal Political Association has requested me to be nominated for the federal election, and after consideration, I have consented. I will have all the hard work of holding meetings to organise my campaign, and naturally have to start out greatly handicapped to the men candidates. I hold a deep-rooted principle that women should step out and assume her share of the responsibilities of the office. I know I must have those who believe in woman for home duties and such like against me, but I believe it is the duty of woman to take her share in the work to protect her interests and that she should take the deepest interest in political matters. Personally, I have no axe to grind, and if I desire a peaceful life, I should remain out of politics. <laughs> I believe, however, that woman should go in for some of these duties, not for self-interest, or the amount of money hanging to it, as so many men do, <laughs> but because it should be the duty of all to do the best they can for the state, one way or the other. I am convinced I could do my share if elected to Parliament, applause, 
and that expressions of opinion given on the floor of the House by women will not be altogether valueless. Applause. It used to be hard to get the ear of a Member of Parliament if you were not a voter, but now we have one. It is far different. There are many unjust laws on the statute books. For instance, the law of custodianship, in which the wife has no right to her children, and which the husband can will away, and the mother is absolutely without power to stop the taking away of her child. Do some of you now wonder we want a voice in making of the laws? If elected, I do not intend to ally myself with anyone. I am going on my own. <laughs> I do not approve of party government, as government on strict party lines is government by machinery. One objection is that it must be my party right or wrong. Party organs, such as newspapers, are dangerous. <laughs> That's spontaneous applause, I would say. <laughs> The party arranges a platform and this is to be gone for blindly or as dictated to by the party organisations. I favour the public democratic principle to think for oneself and not to suffer the despotism of Russia. <laughs> wow. Regarding the fiscal question, I must confess to be a protectionist, although it would be more in my line to call myself a fiscal atheist. Women, children, duty, low wages, etc., are not ones which are troubled by the fiscal question. Over free trade and protection, I do not get keenly excited. I let the men get excited instead. <laughs> I am in favour of white Australia, but against the deportation of the poor Kanakas who have been brought to the state, and to deport them means in some cases death through intermarrying. They should not insist on the deportation. Having brought the Kanakas here, our people should be prepared to bear the consequences, but no more should be allowed in. These people have been civilised, Christianised, educated, and there is no reason to force them out. I am decidedly opposed to coloured people coming in. Those who are going for a white Australia are going bald-headed for it. Laughter. I am rather wobbly on assisted immigration, as I have seen a good deal of this since going to America, where I have seen 100,000 dumped down in New York to swell the labour market and give cheap labour. Yeah, I know, it's hard to applaud now, isn't mm. it? Arbitration and conciliation have my support, as I believe it would stem endless trouble and loss and do away with the bitterness and distress of lockouts and strikes. The establishing of a federal capital and the building of a transcontinental railway, I am not in favour of, <laughs> chiefly on account of the wild expense likely to be evolved. Loud applause. <laughs> <laughs> it is so seldom that I have such an opportunity to address a meeting like this that I cannot resist the temptation to speak to the women and impress upon you the necessity of using your power to secure your rights. And then the chairman concluded. They had been privileged to enjoy a thoroughly good night, he said, an educational, intellectual treat, and the meeting should now close. 
all had enjoyed the evening and it should not be prolonged to weary the speaker. (laughs) His opinion was the speech had been highly educational and he could publicly say that if it was his vote, he would elect Miss Goldstein. She could rely upon having it. The motion was carried by the heartiest of acclamation. Miss Goldstein suitably acknowledged the compliment and moved a vote of thanks to the chairman, which terminated the meeting. At the close of the meeting, a number of ladies remained in the ball in the hall and tendered their congratulations to Miss Goldstein for her able and instructive remarks. So, Chairman Kanowski, I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. That's it for the episode. Thank you, Professor Claire Wright, for finding a little glassed booth for me at the Agora Library at La Trobe University. What a chat. And there's going to be another chat with Professor Wright coming into the podcast feed shortly, talking about a personal speech of hers, a very personal speech of hers about depression. Our sponsor again is docplay.com. There's a link in the show notes. And look up Utopia Girls. Utopia Girls, how women won the vote. Go to docplay.com forward slash racks forward slash speakola. You get 45 days free subscription which you can cancel. You won't. You'll love it. You can help me out at news.speakola.com by becoming a paid subscriber. These episodes are a lot of work, sourcing guests, getting out and doing the interviews, and then the edits take, well, at least a day each time. If you want to help the show out, you can join up at news.speakola.com. You can do it for free, or you can pay. $50 a year is the price of a paid subscription, or $5 a month. Very grateful to, I think it's nearly 70 people who have done it at news.speakola.com. Another 50 people over at patreon.com forward slash speakola. Thank you to my generous donors. That's it for the episode. Happy one week after International Women's Day. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.